Good morning. I, I got to say, I, I'm actually um, uh, pleased I was wrong. Uh, and uh, this only happens once a, a decade. So, you know, just <laughs> let me try to get my bearings here. But, but no, I, I actually told some of the rest of the staff that Memorial Day weekend, you know, our crowd usually is less. So we may be even 25% less. And, uh, um, and I'm looking out here today, you know, given, you know, we're all returning from this COVID time and stuff like that. And it's a good crowd here today and uh, a lively bunch. So I'm going to do what I can to kind of bring that down a little bit um, over the next few minutes. But, uh, but no, i it, very pleased walking out here and seeing all of you here. want to welcome you this morning and also welcome the folks that are joining us online as well. I was 13 years old, and I was just doing what most older brothers try to do. A number of you in here can relate to this. I mean, it is the job of an older brother to get younger sisters in trouble, correct? Is that, yeah. And uh, uh, now as parents, I know you can't, if you're, especially if you've got children sitting around you, you can't say amen, but you know deep down inside that that's the way you thought, felt back in those days. I was 13, and I, I had a plan. Mom had a very basic rule when it came to the school bus. We lived out in the country, as a number of you did, you know, when you were growing up. We were on a gravel road, and uh, the school bus would, would uh, come by and take us into town. Mom's rule was this. If you make the bus have to wait you're in trouble. And she could always tell if the bus had to wait because you could hear it rumbling out there, you're sitting, waiting. If, if the driver didn't see any activity, didn't see any people, he would give one honk. If he still didn't see any activity, he'd drive off. And, uh, and, and so mom had this rule, you don't make the bus wait. And so on this particular day, I had thought it through. It was an ironclad plan. I was going to scarf down my breakfast, and I was going to be the first one out there. Um, our driveway wasn't exceptionally long. It was like 90 or 100 feet long or so. Um, and, uh, and so I got down there to, to where the bus would stop, and I had plenty of ammunition because, like I already told you, it was a gravel road, and I was going to use rocks to keep my sisters pinned up against the house. And, uh, and I thought, if the bus had to sit there long enough, then they were going to get in trouble. Um, and so anyway, I'm down there. My sisters, you know, at regular times start coming out the front door only to be greeted with a rock every once in a while being thrown up there. And, you know, and, and I, I mean, it wasn't that far to have to throw, and so I was able to judge and all of this. So they were land, the rocks were landing and kind of rolling up toward them and, and, uh, but, you know, they were younger, and so they were scared. Um, and for some reason, they didn't think their older brother was trustworthy, I guess. But uh, um, so they're up against the house, and yet they're anxious because they know they need to get down there. Otherwise, the bus is going to have to wait, you know, perhaps long enough to get them in trouble. And, uh, and every time they start venturing out five or ten feet, I throw another rock up there. Well, up the road through the trees, you can kind of see the bus lights. So you know now the bus is in the final stretch getting to our house. And then you could actually hear it as well. 
And, uh, and so they, I could see the lights. They could hear it in the distance. And so they knew now's crunch time. And so they start cheating out 10, 20 feet. And so now I know I need to step up my game a little bit. And I need to throw a little closer to where the rocks are landing right at their feet. Not bouncing to their feet, but landing at their feet. Because now I'm thinking, you know, I can take this one step further. Not only pin them up against the house, but perhaps force them into the house. And that increases the chances they're going to get in trouble. Because it'll take longer. And so anyway, as the bus is getting closer, you know, and they're kind of risking it. And they're getting out about 20 feet away from the house. Then I throw another rock, put them up against the house, and, and as the bus is now closing in, I'm like, one more rock ought to do it. And I, I cocked my arm back, and I threw it a little harder than the other rocks that I had thrown. And I didn't know that this was possible, but a rock apparently can catch air. And uh, um, this thing veered to the left and went right through the garage window. And, uh, yeah, glass shattering. Um, mom, you know, boom, right away you see her face in the screen upstairs shouting, what was that? And my sisters were only too happy to answer that question. <laughs> and, uh, and the last thing I remember as the bus rolled into place and I stepped onto the bus is mom shouting words like this. You'll answer to your dad, Brad, when he gets home. I got on the bus, and as soon as I sat, I instantly was sick to my stomach. And the rest of the day at school, I was sick to my stomach. I never was one of those students that looked forward to school or enjoyed school. Okay, that just wasn't, wasn't who I was. Um, and I, usually, I just wish the clock would move faster, you know, on a regular day. But on this day... I wanted the clock to move slowly because I knew when I'd get home, you know, I, I was 13 years old. I was taller than my dad, and, you know, we had graduated sometime earlier beyond the hand-spanking stage, okay? So we, we were in a whole new uh, field of discipline at this particular point in time. And, uh, and I was just, just like, I didn't want to go home. But every time when I was in class, I'd look at the clock and it seemed like it was an hour and a half later. It just, it was one of the shortest school days I ever experienced. And I went home, got off the bus uh, about an hour or so before dad would get home, still feeling sick to my stomach. And uh, just the short of it is when he got home, I got my medicine. Okay. Um, and so that, that whole thing, as perfectly planned as all of that was, um, it really wasn't a very good idea, I concluded. So I wasn't going to do it again. Well, today we're talking about a subject that kind of has that effect on people. And what I'm talking about is the effect of dread. You know what I'm talking about. You've ever experienced that? That, that deep, heavy feeling of dread, you know, where you're approaching something, it's getting closer and closer, and you just, you just feel sick to your stomach, and uh, you wish you could get out of this, but you know there's no getting out of it. Um, well, that's kind of along the lines of what we're going to be talking about today. Let me show you um, the main passage that we're going to be using, and I'll show you the words of this passage here in just a moment, but you're welcome to follow along in your Bible. First, though, let me frame this in its context a little bit. 
This is the, the ending of the third to the last chapter of the Bible. The book of Revelation was the very last book written. Um, it was around 95 or so A.D. Um, uh, that uh, the Apostle John wrote this. The verses immediately preceding this, he basically is explaining that lights are out for Satan. Satan was judged and thrown into the lake of fire. And just to correct maybe uh, um, an incorrect notion that gets floated around sometimes is that hell is not Satan's domain where he sits on a throne. If, if that is your image, I can understand how it would be that way because it seems to be depicted depicted that way in stories and in paintings and in movies and stuff like that. But hell, that's part of Satan's judgment. That's originally why hell was created to begin with. You know, so so he's not like reigning supreme in hell. He's being punished in hell. Okay? So so to kind of correct maybe a false notion that some have. Well anyway, the verses immediately preceding this text is talking about how Satan is thrown into the lake of fire. The verses immediately following this, you know, bridges into chapter 21, which back when the Bible was originally written, there weren't chapter divisions, remember. So, but the verses that follow this is a description of the new Jerusalem in all of its beauty and the redeemed who are there. And especially it's describing how they are in God's presence. They see God face to face. Okay, so, so really, really an upbeat message you know, in the verses that follow here. Um, but, uh, but here's what I want you to see in this text. It says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Now, and we're going to see here in just a second, uh, these books, I believe that is a reference to the records of our life. You know, all of the actions, the deeds, including even the things that we say. Because there are, Jesus was uh, the one that talked about how we'll have to answer for every careless word that we've spoken. You know, I think that's what the, the books, plural, uh, are a reference to, is, is all, of, all of that stuff. All right, so it says the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not written, found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, when you read those five verses, I don't care who you are, but it probably makes you swallow hard, right? I mean, because that, that's some pretty heavy stuff. And what's being talked about here is Judgment Day, thus the title of today's message. You know, all of us have significant days in our life some of which have passed some of which are in the future you know whether it be the day you were born or the celebration of that day birthdays 
whether it be the wedding day, or here we are closing out the month of May, we think of graduation, right? And some of us have had family members that have graduated. Um, you know, it's not hard for me to remember, you know, my graduation and Colette's graduation. We went to the same high school. Colette graduated a year ahead of me. Our graduation, the way we approached it, was very different from one another. Uh, as soon as the graduation was over and I was able to go and join her out, I don't remember it now where it was, outside or something or other, outside of the high school. And, uh, uh, man, she was just crying and crying and crying, you know, and because she just didn't want to leave, you know, and, and she was sad because, because school was over, you know, and she wasn't going to be able to come back there. That was so different from me. Um, when my graduation happened, I was all smiles, and I was laughing, and I was like, man, why are we hanging around here? It's over. We got what we came for. Let's get out of here. You know, just a very different approach. But graduation, you know, is a significant day, a significant event in people's um, lives. Well, what we're reading here today, what we're talking about, um, this is a significant event. And I want you to know a couple of things about this. First of all, there we, go. we will all stand before the judge on that day. This is what the Bible teaches. Some people think that's not entirely true. Okay, so you, there's not going to be 100% agreement on that statement uh, because some people just think that it doesn't involve them. A few years ago, U.S. News and World Report took a survey, and they found that approximately 87% of people that were interviewed believed that they were going to go to heaven. That's a pretty high percentage. There have been a number of studies like this, and the percentages kind of fluctuate a little bit, but they're always up there high. You know, the particular one I'm referring to, it came back at 87% that, that felt like they were going to go to heaven, and they did not did not think that they'd have to face judgment because they were going to heaven. This was their opinion, uh, the, their view on it. Judgment was for evil people, and they didn't see themselves as being evil people. In fact, in a lot of ways, they were like, uh, um, I'd compare them to the little boy, the grade school boy that uh, was doing poorly in school. One day when he went to school, he got up from his desk in the middle of class and he slowly walked up to the teacher's desk and he kind of said in a subtle way um, these words. He said, I don't want to scare you, but my daddy says if I don't get better grades, somebody is going to get a spanking. <laughs> now, who do, you think, who do you think that little boy thought was going to get a spanking? Well, he knew he wasn't going to because he wasn't a bad boy. So he figured it must be the teacher that's going to end up getting this spanking. You know, and that's kind of the way, that's kind of the way we, we, we have this tendency of looking at things. You know, that uh, uh, like that little boy, he didn't think that he deserved punishment. And so therefore he concluded, well, it must be the teacher that deserves the punishment. Well, and that's the way a lot of people look at things in regards to this whole subject of judgment. And when it comes to judgment, they think that they're going to get a pass. Now, there are some really evil people in the world. They're not going to get a pass. Judgment day is for them. 
but it's not for us good people. And, and that, there's a variety of reasons why, you know, people uh, have some of this opinion, but that's probably the, the primary one um, as explaining why they come to this conclusion. And, and the way that they're coming to the conclusion, you know, if you want to break it down, is that they're comparing themselves with others. Uh, oftentimes people that they don't like or people that they've heard about in the news, okay, and they compare favorably to them. And so they draw the conclusion that, hey, I'm good to go. Well, the Bible weighs in on this whole idea of us comparing ourselves with one another. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, it says, when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are not wise. That is not a smart thing to do. Because in all actuality, that has nothing to do with it in regards to our subject here today that we're talking about. How we stack up against the people in our neighborhood or the people in our workplace or the people in our world, how we stack up against them, that has nothing to do you know, with, with what's going to be playing out here in, in the end times for each of us personally. So it's foolish to use those kind of standards because those aren't the standards that are going to be used. We're not going to be graded on some form of a curve. Okay, well, as, as long as there are some people that are really, really bad, you know, and some other people that are kind of good but not real, real good, well, that gives me hope because when we get graded on a curve, you know, my grade, which may have literally been a C minus, all of a sudden becomes a B. You, you remember how that was in school, being graded on a curve. That's not the way this works. That's not the way on Judgment Day it's going to work. When we are in the Lord's presence, that is going to be the focal point. It's the Lord. And then there's going to be the obvious contrast between us and the holiness and glory of the Lord. You remember the story of Isaiah when, when he had this vision and and was found himself right in the very presence of God and how that all played out. It's in Isaiah chapter 6, and the first four verses of that chapter read like this. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim, which that's one particular category of angels, seraphim stood above him each having six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Okay, so this is part of what he's observing. As he, here he is, he finds himself in the very presence of the Lord, in the throne room of God, and, and it's just uh, uh, an awesome experience, incredible, beyond anything he's previously experienced. But, but the question can be asked and should be asked, but how did it impact him personally? What kind of a, an emotional reaction did Isaiah have? That's what he gets to in the very next verse. Verse 5. Then I said, woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips. 
and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. That was his reaction. When he was exposed to, to the magnificence, the glory, and the splendor of the Lord, the reaction that Isaiah had, if I'm going to paraphrase that, his response was, oh no. That was his response. Woe is me. You know, because he knew the huge contrast between the holy and righteousness of God and then what he represented. You see, at that moment, he wasn't comparing himself with anyone else. All he could see was the holiness of God. The Bible talks a lot about judgment, in particular, judgment day. I mean, it talks even more about the subject of judgment, but judgment day specifically is referenced many times in the Bible. Let me just throw out rapidly a handful of these. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, just as each man is destined to die once, and after that comes judgment. Acts chapter 17, God has set a day, a day when he will judge all the world with fairness by the man he chose long ago. And God has proved this to everyone by raising that man from the dead. Okay, this is one of the many verses that clarifies that it's going to be Jesus that is going to be the one sitting um, in judgment when that time comes. Matthew 25, Jesus was telling a parable here, but again, he's referencing the, this very topic. It says, but when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another, as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And the parable continues. It's quite a few more verses. Acts chapter 10, verse 42. This is when Peter was talking to Cornelius. He said, And he ordered us to preach everywhere and to testify that Jesus is the one appointed by God to be the judge of all the living, and the dead. And then we have 2 Corinthians chapter 5. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Now there's a whole slug of other passages too, but, but I just wanted to show you that, you know, what we're talking about here isn't just based on a passage in Revelation and then all of a sudden a person could start arguing, yeah, but Revelation, the kind of language, highly symbolic language, you know, maybe it really doesn't mean what we're thinking it means. Now, there, this topic is dealt with numerous times in Scripture. There's a lot of it um, in the Bible. But here's the thing. Really, when it comes down to it, it's like when that day arrives, the real question is going to be, are you in the book? I'm not talking about the books, plural, that we read about in Revelation 20. I'm talking about the book, singular, that Revelation 20 drew specific reference to a couple of times. In fact, uh, um, one of those times was verse 12 where it says, right after talking about the books, plural, were open, it says another book was open, 
which is the book of life. And then at the very end of the chapter, verse 15, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So there were a couple of times that this particular book is referenced. Now, this really matters, you know, uh, um, about whether or not you're listed in the book of life. It is of critical importance. It cannot be overstated. Um, the book of life is mentioned um, not, not a humongous amount of times in the Bible, but it is mentioned several times. I'd just be guessing. I didn't actually count them up six, eight, nine times or so um, throughout the Bible. Um, but it, every time that it's listed, it's listed and stated in a, in a very important fashion. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's not like, again, going back to the whole graduation thing, since we're kind of in that time frame. Um, when I was a senior, I still remember getting maybe what represented my first piece of junk mail. Okay, I didn't realize what my life was going to be like with all the junk mail that was going to come through all the years. But uh, um, and when I was a senior, I got this letter in the mail. It just started out with something along the lines of, congratulations, you have been selected and you will be listed in the book, Who's Who Among American High School Students. You know, and it really made it look like, it's like, whoa, what an honor. You know, and I remember seeing that and I was thinking, wow, and I wasn't even a part of National Honor Society, but I'm going to be in Who's Who among American high school students. I'd never heard of this, you know, before. All I had to do was pay $29.99, you know, and I'd get my own personal copy of this book. Um, you know, and I, I thought there was something fishy about it. I thought, this is weird. Um, where'd this come from? And, uh, you know, I got to thinking, well, it's a book, and I had one kind of blow-off course uh, hour uh, my senior year was in the library and so I thought well I'm going to check the school library see if they happen to have any copies of this book and uh, sure enough they did they had a shelf that had multiple um, books like this and so I pulled one of them out and uh, just thought okay this is what my honor is going to look like and I opened it up and I mean I don't know have any of you ever looked in one of those books it is just a book filled with name after name after name. There are thousands of names, thousands upon thousands of names. That's all it is, just a book with names. And I thought, what is this? You know, and, and that was when I first was exposed to some of the types of money-making schemes that, you know, are out there. Um, there wasn't anything special about that book. Well, see, what we're talking about here, this book, that the Bible is referencing, sometimes called the book of life, a couple times called the Lamb's book of life. Boy, everything possible is special about this. And so the question is a significant question. Are you in the book? It's been around for a long time. I would go as far as to say that I think that this is what uh, is being referenced way back in the Old Testament. Oops, went one too far. In Exodus chapter 32. This was uh, right after Moses was up on Mount Sinai getting the Ten Commandments and all of that. And you'll remember he, he was up there a prolonged period of time. His brother Aaron collected a bunch of gold, melted it down, made a golden calf. And idolatry was happening in Israel's camp, right? Remember that? part of the story. 
Um, and so Moses comes down and sees all that. Well, it's right in that time frame that we read this. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has committed a great sin, and they have made a god of gold for themselves. But now, if you will, see this is all a prayer by Moses, if you will forgive their sin, and if not, please blot me out from your book which you have written. The Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. But you see, this book, it's been around for a long time. Even back in, in the early parts of, of recorded scripture, we, we read about it. After the uh, description of Judgment Day that I started the message out with in the last five verses of Revelation 20, then you move into chapter 21, and that's the description of the new Jerusalem and all the splendor and the glory, the huge pearly gates, right? And you've all heard of the, and read, you know, the passage about the streets of gold. That's where that is found in Revelation chapter 21. Well, the way that chapter ends isn't totally different than the last verse of the previous chapter. Here's the last verse of that chapter. Nothing impure will ever enter it. Nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So we're talking about the new Jerusalem. We're talking about it in the presence of God. We're talking about this glorious place where the redeemed will find themselves. All right, so in view of all of this, the natural question that follows is your name in the book would be this question. How do you get your name in the book? That's the million-dollar question. How do you get your name in the book of life, the Lamb's book of life? And I'll just clarify it by stating how you don't do it. It is not a performance-based thing. If you're thinking that, well, you need to be good enough, you need to live a clean, good you know, respectful life. Now, I got news for you. That ship has already sailed and you've missed it. That's what the Bible teaches. I've missed it. We have missed the mark. The very basic meaning of the most common word used for sin in the Bible literally means to miss the mark. We've already missed that mark of, of living such a, you know, a good life that we achieve it based on our performance, on our personal goodness, based on merit. No, we have missed that mark. Paul um, does a good job of explaining salvation uh, and some of the details about salvation in the book of Romans. And the first part of his explanation, and this is part of why he was so effective in, in his explanation, is first of all, he knows he needs people to, to sense the fact that they're lost and they need salvation before they're going to really appreciate the good news of the gospel. And so the early part of the book of Romans is, is you know, kind of a ooh, discouraging, you know, read. Uh, but then as you read on, all of a sudden, it's like, man, there's some really good news here. 
Well, in, in the earlier part, in chapter 3, this is one of the things that he establishes with his readers uh, in the church in Rome. He says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all have missed the mark, and so we've fallen short. We've missed the mark, okay? Uh, and so he gets that thought established, and that doesn't leave any of us out, and that's why I said earlier that ship has sailed and you weren't on it. Uh, and I was able to say that not because I've been peeking in your windows of your house and observing your life. It was because I knew what Scripture said about this subject. And it said that you've missed it. You've missed the mark. As it says about myself, that I have missed the mark. However, you go a couple of chapters later and you read this verse in chapter 6, verse 23. It says, for the wages of sin is death. And that's not talking about your heart stops beating. This is talking about the death involved with the lake of fire and all of that kind of stuff. The second death as described in Revelation. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Describes it as a gift. A gift is not something you deserve necessarily, and it certainly is not something you've earned. Okay? So we need to get that established in our mind. That, that this eternal life that the Bible is talking about, this is a result of being a gift that is given to us. It's not something that we have personally achieved or that we've earned, and it's like a paycheck in response to us having put in our time and performed well enough. No, that, that, that would be an incorrect you know, thought about this. Like I said, salvation is not performance-based. On judgment day, God's grace will be on display through Jesus Christ. And that's what, here, let me take you somewhere else. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 does a good job of bringing that to light. It says, God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. So none of us can boast about it. You see what those verses are saying? None of us can stand here or stand there on judgment day and uh, think, hey, look at me. I made it. Look at how I live my life and what I've achieved. None of us can do it. None of us can boast about it. None of us can be cocky about this because based on our own performance, we missed it. We fell short. We missed the mark. But rather, this is all a part of a gift from God, and it's all due to his grace. That is what the gospel is all about. This is why Jesus came. You know, if you want to know the true meaning behind Christmas and what we celebrate and why we celebrate it in a big way because we treat it like it's a big thing, ultimately, you want to really understand that, you need to understand this. That his birth was more than just his entry into the world, living among his creation. It was what he accomplished while he was here. Let me show you again, going back to what Paul said in Romans. Remember I told you the, the beginning part, you know, is kind of a dark picture and how um, the wages of sin is death. But then by chapter 6, he's talking about but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Well, as he's getting there to chapter 6, he makes this statement in Romans chapter 5. 
But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? Just let these words soak in a little bit. Saved from God's wrath. Saved from God's wrath. We're talking there about judgment. We're saved from God's wrath. How did all that how was all that made possible? Well, it all starts with God's love. You see that in the beginning of verse 8. It was God's love. We didn't take the initiative in all this. God is the one who took the initiative in this. And he sent his son. Jesus died for us. Why did Jesus tell Peter, put your knife away when he was being arrested? Remember, Peter took a knife and he cut some guy's ear. Put your knife away. Because Jesus knew what was about to happen needed to happen. Not for Jesus' sake, but for your sake and for my sake. Jesus knew he needed to die. That was why he came. So, Peter, put your knife away. All right? And, and then it uses this word justified, which was a first century legal term that literally means declared innocent. Because of God's love, Jesus' coming and dying on our behalf we are declared innocent in the eyes of God. That is a big thing. We are declared innocent as if we'd never sinned. That's what that word means. Just as, I mean, look at the word itself, just as if I'd never sinned. I mean, you can even use the word to create the, the definition for it. And then he goes on and closes that thought out by saying, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath? through him. Wow, such good news there. This is what the gospel is all about. This is why Jesus came. It's not good people who go to heaven. Let's get that through our minds, all right? Let's change our thought if that has been our thought coming into today, thinking, well, good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell. Good people don't go to heaven. Forgiven people go to heaven. Because the reality is, when we use a term like good people, we're getting all caught up in the comparison game again. And we are not. You know, Sean, you're not the standard that I'm going to be measured by. And I'm not the standard you're going to be measured by. Which, you know, you probably wish I was. But, but you know, it just doesn't work that way. You know, we're not going to be compared you know, to one another. The standard is Jesus Christ. And uh, wow, you know, we don't have a shot there. We've, we've, we've missed that. But, but it's not good people that go to heaven. It's forgiven people. This is what the Bible is teaching. And when you embrace Christ in faith, then what he did on the cross it applies to your account. You are justified. And so when judgment day rolls around, it's not going to be a fearful thing. Now, there's a lot more that we can talk about this, actually a whole lot more, but I, I want to end this way. I want to I end with um, 
um, three verses in the book of 1 John. John is the one that wrote Revelation. He also wrote the Gospel of John. But he wrote three other books that sometimes we forget, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And 1st John is only five chapters long, but boy, there's some, there's some valuable content here. Toward the end of 1st John chapter 4, John writes this. God has shown us his love by sending his only son into the world so that we could have life through him. See, this is why Jesus came, so that we could have life through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the payment for our sins. That's a key expression there. So God took the initiative. It wasn't us taking the initiative. He sent Jesus. The reason Jesus came was to be the payment for our sins. Just a handful of verses later in that same chapter, we see this. God's love has reached its goal in us. So we look ahead with confidence to the day of judgment. Now, I don't know what that verse does for you. That verse, I still remember the first time I ever read that verse. That was probably the verse when I was 17 years old and I read through the Bible. I had never read the Bible preceding when I was 17. But when I was 17, I sat down and I read through it. Some of you know my story. My motives weren't pure initially when I was starting to read it, but it, didn't, it only took a couple of weeks and my whole motivation changed because of what I was reading. But when I read through, in just a few months' time, I read through the entire Bible. That verse impacted me perhaps more than any other verse in the Bible. Because I thought it's got to be a misprint. You cannot put the word confidence in the very same sentence as judgment day. Because judgment day is fear and dread and trembling. And, and here I was 17, but since the time I was about in fifth or sixth grade, you know, I had started developing thoughts. I, 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 knew, I knew there was a heaven and a hell. I knew some of the basic teachings that are found in the Bible. Um, I hadn't connected all the dots. I was far from that. But, but I knew there was a thing called Judgment Day, too. And, I, and it was fearful. And my way of dealing with it for a number of years was try not to think about it. Try to occupy my mind with other things. So whether it was a television, whether it was a, ra a radio, or whether it was going outside and playing basketball, I tried to fill my time to keep me from thinking about it because there was nothing pleasant about this subject at all. From start to finish, it was dreadful. And here I was, 17 years old, and I'm reading through the Bible, and I read in the very same sentence that we can look ahead it uses the word confidence, and then it talks about judgment day. We can look ahead to judgment day with confidence. And that just, it blew my mind. And, and, and I began to, for the very first time at that moment in time, to really seriously connect the dots. That's what this was all about. This is why Jesus came. He made the payment. I'm set free from the guilt that I deserve and the punishment that I deserve. 
Just a few verses later in chapter 5, toward the end of his writing, John says this, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. It's not something you have to cross your fingers and hope, 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 I got eternal life. No, you can know that you've got eternal life. It's not talking about cockiness here, but it is talking about confidence. There's a difference. We can know. So the whole thing about judgment day, as dreadful and as scary as when you read the passages like that one in Revelation chapter 20, now all of a sudden you realize that the whole gospel message is it doesn't have to be a fearful thing if you have embraced Jesus Christ because that's why he came to set us free from our sin to make it possible for us to be forgiven and we don't have to live our lives in fear about how the end times are going to play out instead we can have confidence I tell you what if, if you don't describe that as being good news then I, I don't know what else to say but that is good news and this is why every Sunday we have a time of communion where we take the bread and we eat the bread and we reflect on the body of Jesus. The body that he took on when he became a man, lived among us, and was nailed to the cross. We take the cup, we drink the cup, and we're reminded of the blood of Jesus. The sacrifice that he made when those nails attached him to the cross. And he died on our behalf because he was paying the price for our sin to set us free so that we could have the confidence of stepping into the very presence of God. Not clothed with our own righteousness because we don't have any righteousness to be clothed in, but we're clothed in his righteousness. That's the confidence we have. So I encourage you to pray and reflect on that during this time of communion. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the good news of your word and how we can take one of the most dreaded topics found in the Bible, one that has struck fear among many, uh, many people, and, and uh, among those many are a number of us in this room. And yet, Father, we look at it and we see it all different now. And our love and devotion to you only increases because we see the incredibleness of the sacrifice that you made on our behalf. Thank you. The words like that just don't seem like enough. Thank you for doing something so incredible. And Lord, it is our prayer that with our lives day in and day out, month in and month out, year in and year out, that our lives will be a reflection, being lived in gratitude for what you've done for us. We love you, Lord. Thank you for loving us. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.